this morning. We are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, the words will be on the screen for you. But if you want, you can follow along in the Bible. It's a great story. It's a familiar story we're going to look at today. Uh, but let me encourage you, if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel 11. We're going to dive deep as we always do. Uh, and again, there's one there in front of you in the bulletin if you'd like to use it. I want to begin by talking about the power of the asterisks. The power of the asterisks. Hmm, what is that? You know that little weird star-looking thing? It's a punctuation mark. It actually has some power to it. Let me tell you about some of the power. Roger Maris has an asterisk associated with his name. And for some of you who love baseball, you know where I am going. 61 years ago, Roger Maris broke Babe Ruth's long-standing season home run record. Roger Maris hit 61 homers in the, in the midst of one season, uh, and he broke the beloved Babe Ruth's record. Babe Ruth hit 60 one season. Maris was one better. He hit 61. But when he did that, they put a little asterisk by his name. Why? Because they wanted to say there's something that's not right about this record. What well, wasn't right? Well, when Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs, they played 154 game season. And when Roger Maris hit 61, they played 162 game seasons. So the reality is, hey, you broke it, but you had more games to break it. So let's throw a little asterisk in there so everybody knows you had a little bit something different to beat Roger Maris, right? Can you imagine that? You finally do it and you got an asterisk by your name. But 61 years later, that 61 home runs was beaten this year by this huge guy named Aaron Judge, also playing for the Yankees, and he hit 62. So there's no more asterisks. All right, well, let's talk about other kind of asterisks that maybe mean more than home run records. How about a guy named Richard Nixon? You ever heard of a guy named Richard Nixon? Richard Nixon, uh, a president of these United States of America. And if you evaluate his presidency, you would actually say there's a lot of things that Richard Nixon probably did fairly well. Uh, he had his, most of his presidency during the Vietnam War. That's a, certainly a difficult time to be president. Um, he would do things like open up China, they said, and uh, for whatever strengths that Richard Nixon has, he's got an asterisk. Why? Because on August 8th, 1974, he did something that no other president has ever done then or now. He resigned the presidency of the United States because of a scandal at Watergate. For those of you young people, this is an important part of our history. You want to get it, right? But Richard Nixon, the guy is always going to have an asterisk. No matter what he did, no matter what he did in politics in the world, the reality is he resigned as president of the United States for things that he should not have done. There's a little asterisk on his name. Don't forget, man, to have an asterisk. This morning, as we continue our sermon series on King David, let me remind you, a man after God's own heart, this is David, a man of God's own choosing to be king of his people, a godly king, uh, we are going to see and find that David, this godly king, uh, he had an asterisk to his life. He had an asterisk to his reign. There was a, oh, but by the way, 
I want to start by looking at 1 Kings chapter 15, 5, as that kind of tells us about David. Listen to these words that God's word writes in 1 Kings 15, 5. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Don't you wish that God would say that about you? David, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't turn away from anything that God commanded him all the days of his life. Oh, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That, my friends, is an asterisk. That, my friends, is a huge asterisk. God's word is going to say, here's David. He's an amazing man of God. He is an amazing, faithful follower of our great God. And by the way, he was incredible. Oh, but there was that matter with Uriah the Hittite. This morning, we will examine David's asterisk, the, his sinful exception of a life that was right in the eyes of the Lord. And this morning, I'm going to preach this a little bit different than you're probably used to. Uh, typically at this point in my sermon, I will tell you, here's the outline. I will read through you scripture and we will pray and we will jump in. Uh, this morning's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to begin with prayer and then I'm going to read to you the story and preach to you all simultaneously. So we're going to go and we're going to break this story up in little chunk sized pieces that are wrapped around some points. So let me ask God to come and be among us and to be the true teacher. Let us pray together. Father God, we are grateful that we can gather as your people, and we are grateful for the word that you have given to us. It will never lead us astray, that we could trust it to be true and without error in the originals. Uh, God, we ask now as we open up your word that you would be pleased to fill this place with your presence, that you would be pleased to be our teacher, and that you would speak to us through a, a broken sinner like me, that God, that you would empower each of us, that you give us ears that would hear your voice through your word uh, this morning, that you would give us minds that would understand this word. Now, this is a familiar story to many, but God, help us to really see the story um, as written by your spirit in a way that is, is transformative our lives. That God, that you would be with our hearts, that we would embrace your truth, that we would believe your truth, uh, that you would convict us by your spirit, that we would repent of the things that we need to repent of this morning, and that, God, that you would empower our feet to walk in a manner worthy of your name. Uh, God, the things that are wrong are just my opinion. Let those things just kind of fall away and be forgotten. But, Lord, the things that are said that are true and contain this, this good news of the gospel, what Christ has done for us, would you magnify those things in our lives? And would you feed and grow us? May we bear gospel fruit as we hear your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we come to this story about Uriah the Hittite, it's about his wife Bathsheba. And you know the story if you've been around church. But we're going to begin with the very beginning that David is in the wrong place at the wrong time. It starts off, the story starts off that David's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Listen to verse 1 and 2. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his commander, and his servants with him and all of Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened one late, one afternoon, 
when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And that woman, she was very beautiful. At a time where David should have been in a different place, doing a different thing. Isn't it interesting at that time, in the wintertime, you didn't have war because it just wasn't like good conditions for war. So you waited to springtime. And so in springtime, they're going to have war in a time where kings go out and they will face battle. We find David, this godly king, instead of going where he's supposed to go, doing what kings are supposed to do, David is a peeping Tom. He's a peeping Tom, for goodness sakes. I mean, he's on his roof after an afternoon nap. He gets up and he walks around and his peeping Tom spies with his little eye a woman who is bathing, and by the way, she was gorgeous. Wow. So this peeping Tom, well, the godly king becomes the lustful king. He becomes a king that can't control his own eyes, his own heart. He lusts after this beautiful woman. You know, Scripture will tell us this. In Ephesians 5, 16, Paul writes, he says, Make the best use of time because the days are evil. What a great reminder of us. Our days are filled with evil. And as if the days had and didn't have enough evil in them, guess what? We're broken sinners filled with evil. And so God's word is going to say, be careful, make the best use of your time, because there's evil. Be on guard. Uh, we seem so susceptible, specifically when we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. The days are evil. Our hearts, our eyes are prone to wander. And really is what's saying, hey, Christian, be disciplined. You're going to make sure you have your, your, your guard up. All right, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Secondly is this, running through red lights. David is going to be running through red lights in verses 3 through 4a. And David sent and inquired the woman. He sees her and he says, oh, man, who is that? Go find out about that one. And one said, listen closely, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Okay, so temptation led to inquiry. Man, who is that? You know, maybe you see a flash on the TV, or you see a, a flash on your computer. You Oh, innocently, Sandra, hey, who is that? I wonder what that person is like, and it leads you down to a path that you shouldn't be going in. That's what temptation is. And so here you have David says, hey, who's this naked beauty? Go find out. And David is given information. This is really important. David is given information about Bathsheba. I love the fact this is not a nameless woman. This is not just some woman in his kingdom. This is an image bearer of God. She is a person that God has entrusted to David's care. She was not an object to be lusted over. It's Bathsheba. He should have saw the red light. Oh, yeah. But there was more. The daughter of Eliam. Hey, by the way, she has a father. She's a father. She's a daughter, right? Treat her with respect. Dads. Dads. Your daughters. I mean, don't you well up when you bow up with somebody? Treat my daughter with respect. I mean, I'm her dad, and I care about the way you treat her. But there's more than that. David blew by that red light as well. This flew right through it. 
And then it says, by the way, she's not only Bathsheba, she's not only the daughter of Eliam, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David, she's somebody else's wife. She, David, is not yours. She belongs to another. Bathsheba is married. And here's what's even worse. She's married to one of your mighty men, David. She's married to one of your most loyal men. She's married to someone who's out in the field battling for you right now. Let's talk about those mighty men. 1 Corinthians 11.10 says this. It's talking about David. Now, these are the chiefs of David's mighty men. It's basically saying, these are the Green Beret. Uh, These are the special forces. Uh, These are the ones who have have earned their stripes uh, in, in David's mighty men, who gave him strong support in his kingdom. These are the men who secured David's kingdom for him, together with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So he's basically saying, you want to know who really came alongside that God gifted and empowered to make sure that David's kingdom flourished? Here are the mighty men. And so he lists the men. And in verse 41, guess who one of those men is? Uriah the Hittite. David blew through all the red lights. He should have said, who is this woman? Bathsheba, daughter, wife, ooh, not me. But he blew through all of the red lights. God graciously gives him these red lights, and he graciously gives them to us. He gives us his word, he gives us his spirit, and God's going to say, listen, don't run through the red lights. I will catch you. You'll be caught. Then we'll see, thirdly, your sins will find you out. Verse 4b and 5. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. My mom told me growing up, Jeffrey, your sins will find you out. She was quoting Numbers 32, 23. She quoted it in the King James, which gave it even more scary language. Jeffrey, your sins are going to find you out. I don't know, something about a mom telling you your sins are finding you out. You're like, oh my goodness. I'm going to break out in a rash. I can't identify. Things are going to fall off. I mean, I'm going to be found out. Mom told me she's quoting scripture. Exactly what, this is what Numbers 32, 23 says. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. One of the most terrifying things a young man can ever hear from his mom when she quotes scripture like this. Your sins will find you out. David's sin was about to find him out. Now, it says something interesting in the text. It says that Bathsheba was purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Doesn't that seem to be a little bit personal to be added in God's word? Don't you think if Bathsheba was here, she'd say, can you not have to mention what was going on of purifying the uncleanliness Why in the world would we need to know that? Do you know why? There was no DNA testing. So purifying herself was letting the reader and us know there was no other man, there was no other option. We do not need a DNA test. This is David's doing. This is the result of David's lustful encounter with her 
she's pregnant and David is the father. So Bathsheba sends word to David, I'm pregnant. You know what? Scripture tells us sin always bears fruit. You always will weep what you sow. And it's not always immediate, isn't it? I mean, sometimes we feel like we get away with stuff for a pretty long time. Sometimes it's always the degree which we think we should get repaid for. But I got to tell you, according to Scripture, sin will always lead to a death. It will always lead to a death. The wages of sin, it's death. That's what happens. Listen to what James says in James 1.14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, it says each person, that's all of us, uh, that we are tempted. Jesus himself was tempted, but he was without sin. He's lured and enticed by his own desire. Think of David. He's on the roof. He's lured. He's enticed by his own desire. Verse 15, then desire when it is con has conceived gives birth to sin. We see that in David. Man, I, I got the desire. Who is she? Bring her here. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. This is so true with David. And it's so true with us. Sin will always lead to death. Sin will lead to a separation from God. And I got to hit pause here and say this. Our sin will separate us from God. But if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, if you are his, that separation is more of a communion with God. It's not our union with God. Because scripture will tell us that nothing separates us from the love of Christ. Even our sinfulness rejoice. That even death itself will not separate us in union once we are saved by God's grace through the work of Christ, when Jesus says it is finished, he paid for all of our sins, not some, in full. It is God's grip on us that will never let us go. God never loses one of his sheep, even a sinful sheep who wanders away from him. He will discipline him. He will have consequences for that. That union will never be broken. That communion is. And if you're in sin, your relationship with God is in peril in a sense where you don't have that communion. Be careful. But sin has another thing. It separates us from one another. I mean, guys, if you're caught in porn, you're separating yourself from your wife, your family. You go into a dark place, someplace that separates from you. You, you want to be not seen in what you are doing. Uh, what, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They were separated from each other, right? They were afraid. They realized, oh my goodness, we have no clothes. We're naked and we're afraid. Let's hide, let's hide from God and let's hide from one another. It's always been the case. You sin, you hide from God, and you hide from one another. Your sins will find you out somewhere, sometime. And then we're going to see the honorable and the disgraceful in verses 6 through 13. All right, so she's pregnant, so here, what happened? So David sent word to Joab, Hey, send to me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. David didn't give a rat's fanny about how Joab was doing, how the people were doing. This is smoke and mirrors. He's got Uriah where he wants him. Then David said to Uriah, Hey, Uriah, here's a good idea. Why don't you go down to your house and why don't you wash your feet? And a euthanism that's basically very, it's very suggestive. 
It's, it, the scripture's not going to tell us, hey, why don't you go down and sleep with your wife? No, why don't you go down and wash your feet? But I tell you, the original audience knew exactly what he was saying. Uriah, you've been away from home. Your wife is hot. Why don't you go and do what husbands and wives do? Wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. I'm going to throw you a bottle of wine. I'm going to make sure that I set the mood. I'm going to give you a little present, a little maybe something for strength. Uriah, why don't you go down there and, and see your wife? But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all his servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark, the presence of God, the ark uh, and Israel and Judah dwell in Booth, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Uriah says, shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, king, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, well, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, uh, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. David saying, well, I'll get him, throw a little tequila in that throw a little booze, get him a little tipsy, get him a little going, I'll make him drunk. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go to his house. Isn't it amazing? Now watch this. Uriah the Hittite. You know what that tells us? Uriah is a foreigner. He is not a natural-born Israelite. You have a foreigner and you have David. You have the king with supposed to have a heart after God, and you have a foreigner. Uriah is honorable, he's noble, he's faithful to God, and listen, Uriah is more faithful drunk than David is sober. David is disgraceful, despicable. David is scheming instead of repenting. He's scheming. And brothers and sisters, when we try to cover up our sin instead of repenting of our sins, things will always go from bad to worse. Next point. Drastic times call for drastic measures. Verses 14 through 21. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, that if the king anger rises, and if he says to you, why do you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Imbimelech, the son of Jerubaseth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. The absolute 
brazen audacity of David to write a letter, a death warrant for Uriah the Hittite and give it to him in his own hand. I want you to carry your own death warrant. Go give this to Joab. Go give this to your commander. And you know, Uriah is such a noble man, he didn't read it. He goes and does it. David's sin is bearing hideous fruit. He thinks the ends justify the means. I got to kill this guy. I got to get rid of the evidence. I got to bury it. The ends are going to justify the means. Let me get rid of him. Let me do all that I can. And then he's told, by the way, innocent men are dying. They're dying for you, David. But Uriah the Hittite's killed. Oh, how a godly man has fallen. Next thing. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Verses 22 through 25. So the messenger went out and came and told David all that Joab had sent to tell him. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Verse 25, listen to this. David said to the messenger, Thus so you shall say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage them. David is so callously flippant. He's going to say, Hey, the sword kills one and it kills another. You know what? This is bad. All things, bad things happen. People die. Uriah did not die by the sword, did he? He died by the premeditated murderous sin of his king, of the king he was loyal to to the very end. How could David be so callous? How could sin have darkened David's heart that much? Then we see mourning to marriage, verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah, let's make sure the writer wants to know, by the way, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to the house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. David tries to bring legitimacy and honor to his sin. He makes Bathsheba... His wife, she bore him a son. And I got to say, what was this like for Bathsheba? Innocent in this, being brought into the king's presence, violated by the king, and then having the king kill her husband, mourning for them, and then say, by the way, let's get married. Oh, if there was ever a need for a counselor. Lastly, you can't pull the wool over God's eyes. 27b. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Do you think? David, the godly king. David, what he had done displeased the Lord. Why? Because our God is holy and our God hates sin. And God knew the whole story. He, he knew the whole story and there's no fooling our God. He knows our stories. He knows our thoughts. He knows our words. He knows our deeds. He knows everything because everything is in his plain sight. 
And we got to realize, like David, our sin displeases the Lord too. As a minister, this story always haunts me. And I think this story God has used to use in my life to challenge me and to warn me. If King David could do this, if King David could become an adulterer, a murderer, what am I capable of? What are we all capable of? And the question we got to end with is this. How can we regain God's pleasure? David lost it. How can he regain it? What must David do to regain God's pleasure? How do we gain it? How does he gain it? What must we do? What must he do? And let me just address another question for just a moment. Just bear with me. Very important. How do you know a sermon passes a synagogue test? You've never probably heard that before. How do you know if a sermon passes a synagogue test? If a sermon can be preached in a synagogue, it fails a good sermon. Let me say it again. If this sermon can be preached in a sermon, a synagogue, it fails as a good sermon. Because it could be good biblical information, and I think you got it today. It could give you the background and the context. But a sermon needs to be a Christ-centered sermon. A sermon needs to point to Jesus. A sermon is only transformational when Christ is the object and we see him. How does he fulfill this? How does he change this? How is this about Jesus? And so we have to ask ourselves that question. What does this passage teach us or reveal about Jesus? So that this isn't just a good synagogue sermon. Well, we see things like we need a more righteous king than David. I've told you throughout this, it's always been God's design to lead, defend God's people through a godly king. And David is not our hope. David is not that king. We need something better than David. David is an adulterer and a murderer. We need a king who will deal with our sins and our transgressions. And we find in Jesus, Jesus covered our sins with his blood. Jesus paid for our sins and transgressions with his life. Jesus is the ultimate king of kings who broke the chains of sin and death. David is the king who got entangled in sin and death just like you and me. But the question is, how can David regain God's pleasure? What must David do to get right with God? And the answer is the very same thing that you and I must do. Repent and believe. Repent and believe that God can forgive sins through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The one, watch this, who is both David's son and David's Lord. There's no other way to get right with God other than Jesus coming and magnifying the law by living a holy life we've failed to live, by dying an atoning death on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God for our sins, and being resurrected from the grave. David is not made right by anything that he could do on his own, because he is like you and me, fallen short of God's glory and perfection, utterly hopeless, apart from God's grace and mercy. And don't think for a minute that God is so merciful that he could just forgive David out of the goodness of his heart. God didn't say, you know what, David, you've done so many great things. you got this one little asterisk. Let's just forget about this one little asterisk. No, that's not a holy God. 
David, the only way you're made right is my son has to put on flesh. The only way you're made right is he has to come and live an obedient life that you have failed to live. Someone has to fulfill the law. You didn't do it, David. Someone has to pay the price for your sins. Let me tell you, there's never been a sin that will not be paid in eternity, either by ourselves or by our Savior. How is he made right? He's made right by the life, death, and resurrection of a Savior that's to come, and his name is Jesus. And you know what's the reality, my brothers and sisters? Instead of an asterisk in our life, we get a cross. And because we have a cross, we have God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. We need a cross. You see, there's so many moral implications for this. Are you in the right place at the right time? Are you running through red lights? We could make this a moral sermon, and we should listen to many things. Guard yourself. You're, you're prone to wander. Our world is evil. But there's more. You need a king that's better than David, and his name is Jesus. Have you knelt before him? Have you wept over your sins? Or are you trying to weave some fig leaf to cover up your, your sinful deeds? It doesn't work. Come and find the joy of having your sins forgiven by a Godson who would bleed and die for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, what a great story. It's a heart-wrenching story. But God, it's a reminder that we need someone better than David. That David was an amazing man, but he was a sinner like us, and he was a big sinner. That God, we thank you for a story that shows how far we will go to cover our own tracks and to try to make right our own sins on our own. It leads to death every time. And God, our sins led to death. It led to the death of Jesus, our Savior. And amazingly, through his wounds, we could be forgiven and free. The only way to get right with God is that our Savior experienced his displeasure so that we can receive his blessing and pleasure in Christ Jesus. Oh God, may that compel us to live for you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.